Welcome to Paytech Talk, the podcast about payments. Today's guests are a very exciting duo that we have on the podcast. Marianne Francis, Executive Advisor, Mentor Global Payments and Strategic Initiatives, American Banker Top 20 Most Influential Women in Payments 2023, and Money 2020 Gold Visionary. And to compliment Marianne, we have Jim Maru. He's a top five retail banking influencer, co-publisher of the financial brand. He's he's a podcast host. He is everywhere. He's at every conference and he's always on the airwaves. So today we're going to talk about a very, I guess, a very special topic, payments in the good old US of A. We're just going to discuss all things payments USA. As we are. Everything you wanted to know everything literally because this is a two-part episode go big or go home absolutely live free or die just a shout out to new hampshire just absolutely new hampshire but also shout out to ohio which has given us these two guests as well as our co-host elliot absolutely o-h-i-o if you know you know enjoy the show (laughs) i miss you guys by the way in netherlands i miss you guys (laughs) oh my my truly my favorite picture was the one that happened out of nowhere in the streets on the, yeah. the night of the party, oh, and and yes. it's my favorite picture from uh, Money Twenty Twenty. Unfortunately, you weren't there, but but it was like this whole group of people that it was just fun. It just it was a happy place. So, well, good. Okay. I'm, I'm glad you had you you had nice time in Amsterdam, and because uh, it's a it's a pretty cool city. I've been there a couple times. In fact, twice this year, um, a couple times before that. But it's just yeah, it's one of my favorite. Not the most surprising city because it is what it. <laughs> I, I just mean it, it is what you think it's going to be, but just it's kind of it's just a cool environment. Marianne, you were also here in Amsterdam, <laughs> but it seems like you've been here before as oh, well. So many times I can't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I have my own billboard. It's yeah. <laughs> I don't know if that's good or bad. What's the billboard talking about? <laughs> well, when people call me out of the blue, they're like, I was sent to, to talk to you because people say payments queen, and I said, no, no, payments goddess, please. But I used to say, um, I actually used to say that my name is on the back of a bathroom door. Like for a good time in payments, call one eight hundred math. Like, how did not, you get my name? How did you I, get my number? I am not touching that. Not touching. That. <laughs> I oh, seriously, God said my name's on the back of a door somewhere. So that's, that's how long I've been around. That's how long I've been around. If I see one, I'll take a picture of it. You know? Oh, I'll do it, please. Go. Yes. <laughs> My daughters are so proud. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I uh, know that's that's good, but it's glad to have you both on and have a Clevelander podcast. I'm sure that'll come up and we can entertain the world with some Cleveland facts and tell them how actually awesome Cleveland has become in the last twenty something years. Absolutely. See, look, they agree. It's not. Yeah, it was I'm different. Excited to learn about Cleveland. It was different when I I left in 2002 when I was 18. It was completely. Yeah, there was like nothing downtown, and now it's actually kind of a cool city uh, yep. that you can go to. Yeah, but here's one thing you should know then. O-H. I-O. <laughs> Guys, I feel very left out. Nobody well, nobody, nobody in Ohio can spell the entire word. That's the problem. So that's, oh, and, oh, okay, we'll go one step further. You know what we refer to Michigan as? The team up north. We don't ever use the name Michigan. We're in Michigan. Yeah, for football. football. The rivals in football. Yeah, Ohio State, Ohio State and Michigan. So there's a big weekend for Ohio State football. Football with Penn State Penn playing State, them this weekend. Yeah. I, uh, a... I'm going to drop a bomb at the beginning of this podcast right now. I'm a Penn State fan, so uh, sorry to. We I... are. We are. Penn State. Yeah. 
Well, yeah, there you. So, yeah, that's. I think those are all the controversial topics we yep. main. Ohio, we got the football thing. Yep. I'm not a sports yeah. person, but you know, it's a, it's a thing in Ohio. My dad yep. went to Ohio State, and it's a thing. You know, I yep. I, I, I don't get it, but it's it's a thing. College so football, man. apparently, yeah, we're gonna get that get the football out of the way, and we're just gonna talk about some payments and see if we can have some fun while doing it. Which yep. I don't think that's really a problem. Great. Okay, so. We're back with another episode of Paid Tech Talk. My name is Elliot. I'm your co-host. And sitting next to me, I have... Other co-host, Emily Robita. Cool. Today, and today, I think this is going to be one of the coolest episodes we have because we're going to talk about payments in the U.S. And it just happens to be that every person on this call is actually from the U.S. That's going to be very, very cool. So on online, I have Jim and Marianne. So could you, Marianne, could you go first and introduce yourself? Absolutely. Hi, Marianne Francis, as said, based in Cleveland, Ohio. Um, I'm an executive advisor, uh, sort of an independent industry consultant. I'm actually a legacy banker. So I ran trade and treasury for a bank that you would now know as PNC. Um, and from there have done strategy consulting, um, head of product and strategy for a variety of companies uh, and have been very involved globally uh, in the payments industry. I currently sit on three industry boards. Uh, one in the U.S., one in Europe, one in Australia, and um, I really speak to the topic almost everywhere. Wow. Okay. So indeed, payments, payments around the world. Oh, and another thing to mention is three of the four people on this call, <laughs> including myself, or well, two other people are we're all from Cleveland. So, yeah, small world. It is a small and world. And I'm gonna make it even smaller for you. And Marianne knows this, but um, I'm a legacy banker. My career started at a bank that is now PNC, was National City Bank, as it was with Marianne when she was there. Um, and um, over the last, uh, I, I was on in banking industry as a banker for 15 years. I was in the banking industry as a um, associate serving banks for about uh, 20 years. And uh, then I've been in uh, content creation since then. So, um, Content Creation being the uh, co-publisher of the financial brand, being the owner and uh, publisher of the Digital Bank Report, and most recently being the host of the Banking Transform podcast, which is the top podcast in retail banking. Wow, great. So we have two yes. very impressive people that we're going to talk to very today impressive. about payments and payments in the good old USA. Yes, indeed. Well, thank you for introducing yourselves. Let's just get right into it. As Elliot said, we are all from the U.S. Uh, Elliot and I no longer live in the U.S., but when I go back personally, um, I usually am paying with card or cash, but in the Netherlands, it's all digital wallet, <laughs> it seems. So I guess the first question we want to start with is like, what's going on with paying in store in the U.S.? Marianne, do you want to start? Yeah, sure, absolutely. What's interesting, it, and you have to kind of look at the POS, right? It, it, it's the, the point of sale that makes the, the call. It's still heavily card. There's more cash than you think, but it's not increasing. If anything, it's holding steady. Uh, digital wallet, not so much, not here. Uh, like many things else, EMV, think about it real time, slow follower um, for a lot of consumers. A little sideways, interesting thing. They are always talking about the cost of these transactions, right? How do you drive a consumer? And I'm I'm much more of a corporate, but corporates are who are, the consumers are the corporate's customer. So, you know, it's always this marriage, but how do you drive a consumer to do a different kind of behavior? And I've experienced them trying to force you to a debit versus a credit card at the point of sale, which mm -hmm. they shouldn't do. 
Um, but the, when we get into the cost and the management of the cost, which is, I think, part of the huge issues at the point of sale, the number one educator of the consumer on how a payment transaction works is the merchant. The merchant, the person behind that counter or clerk that they are, has to explain to consumer, why should I push you to debit? The person says, I don't want to use debit. You can force them to make you take credit. Why would I want to do it a certain way? So you end up making these transactions one longer, two contentious, and three costly, because we as a, as a public have not educated folks as to, you know, the, the different ways and the different values and benefits to those payment types, you know, at the point of sale. And because I am a banker and they try to force me to do something one or the other, <laughs> I'm one of the people that delayed the transaction by explaining to them <laughs> why I don't want to do it that way. So it really is an uneducated market when it comes to all of the variety of, of payment types that you can have. You know, what's interesting, though, is since COVID, I would say almost every retailer now accepts some form of digital payment. So restaurants, which none of them did anything but cards or cash before COVID, Mm-hmm. Now, you'd be hard-pressed to find a restaurant that doesn't accept either a digital payment or a QR code payment. Um, and the retailer said it's the exact same thing. And it's interesting because I make every one of my payments with my phone. I keep my wallet in my glove box with one card in it in case it's needed. I mm-hmm. also have a little bit of cash for things like tips, valets, things of that nature. But other than that, I am, I'm a cashless user. I'm also a cardless user. And financial institutions, nobody else has done a really good job of explaining the benefits of digital versus plastic. Um, the education kind of was driven by the consumer in almost every other country. I mean, I went to Rome eight years ago, and I never I never took on a card or used cash anywhere. It was all mobile pay. And I, it actually was a, a goal of mine to say, can I get through this whole trip? And I got to the last day and then realized that the uh, valet um, the person who had been helping me and the concierge did not accept digital payments. So I broke out some cash. But but the reality is, as Marianne said, it's an educational process. The good part is one part of the triad merchants are pretty much up to date. You will find some that accept all digital payments except for Apple Pay, which is bizarre. Mm-hmm. But right now, a lot of it's changing because there's no ticketing now that's done in the U.S., that's not digital. So there's no more paper tickets. That, that was a major change for all sporting events, all concerts, anywhere else. You can't have a, a, a paper ticket anymore. You basically, it's all digital. Really? Even right. in high school. This is really? not just major sport. This is high school sports. You cannot get yeah. in without, you have to have an electronic ticket. Yep. In addition, if you go to a concession stand, most of them don't accept cash either anymore. Now, that's a tracking mechanism because at sporting events, most vendors are um, charity-based, and this way they can they can monitor the actual flow of cash, and it's a lot safer. So just as, a, as an overall situation, we're in the process of change. We are still way behind the rest of the world. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Jim, you had said that you're pretty much almost a cashless user at this point. Do you think the U.S. will ever go cashless? No, I, I, I don't think. I, I, I'd be surprised. If anywhere goes cashless, mm-hmm. I think there's always going to be some cash. I mean, uh, heck, some of the some of the uh, uh, countries in your neck of the woods tried cashless and it didn't go over very well. It, it, it's not going to be for major transactions, but overall, there's going to be other payment options. And I'd be very surprised. 
Change always happens slower than we think. Um, but I, I, I can't see that actually happening. You know, there's always a reason. What, what's interesting, though, you do find people on the street who are solicitors for money that will take mobile payments. So you want to donate to a person walking, living on the streets, you can just, you know, tap phones and you can transfer funds. So it's, it's bizarre, but let's put it this way. Now, mind you, I'm older than any of you, but um, in my lifetime, I will not see the end of cash. Alan, I just want to echo, I actually wrote a paper at least 20, 25 years ago. I, I was after the cashless society. I can, I can go to South Africa and back without ever, you know, using cash, right? <clears throat> like Jim, it's a goal. But I wrote a paper and it was all about the cost of the invisible cost of cash because everybody thinks it's free and we all know it's not. I ran the cash vault. Trust me, $400 million down there of an unearning asset uh, is very expensive, not to mention transport, guards, yep. just right. But what we learned in the exercise, it was an industry group that I was in at the time. And you do hear this as we become increasingly digital, whatever you define digital to be online, you know, NFC in a disaster, in a catastrophe, the whole town's wiped out. There's no place to use the digital. You know, at the time, things like valets were one of the excuses because you know, now it's evolved. And so valets do have it if you want. But 20 years ago, that was out of the question. Right. So it became those small dollar transactions. And, and actually, one of the main reasons people wanted to go cashless was not just for the cost, but it was the black market. Like there was this huge effort. You saw no more 100s, right? No more 500s, no more thousand dollar bills, no more. You know, you can still get 100. But my perfect life would be $20 down, $10 down for the small transactions, because nobody's going to buy drugs with a million dollars worth of $20 bills, <laughs> right? That's just not going to happen. And so it was the under the table, you know, the babysitter, the lawnmower, all these people that hide in the cash world. That was really a large part of the drive. It wasn't just, you know, cash itself. It was the, the huge black market that cash traffics in. And then again, when you get to a point where Everything's offline because of some disaster. Everything's offline. That's a real problem. And so it'll always be around for some reason. The question is how much, what size, for what purpose. And I mean, I see articles to this second that people don't understand the, the cost of cash. They just don't understand the hidden cost of printing, holding, transporting. Right. And again, for me, my P&L, it was an unearning asset sitting downstairs. I didn't get any interest on that. You know, hundreds of millions of dollars of cash sitting downstairs. So... It's complex. Cash is very complex. On the surface, it seems logical because it's dirty and <laughs> all the other stuff. You know. It's a very complex conversation. It really is. For sure. For sure. Moving on from cash to <laughs> something that we no longer use here. I actually, my aunt gave me a check a couple of years ago. I knew you were going to say and check. <laughs> I did not know what to do with it. I was like, I can't bring this abroad because we don't do checks anymore right so in the u.s where do checks fit in marianne if you would like to start with this it's so funny i was somebody asked me at a conference a year or so ago what was the biggest mistake the banking industry ever made and my answer for the u.s was check 21 and i say that only because i won't say who's responsible the people who didn't want the check to go away we created this infrastructure to take a picture of a piece of paper that we wanted to go away so we take a picture we keep the picture at capture at point one, two, three, four. Oh, by the way, then we had the people that wanted the picture in color so they could see the puppies on their checks <laughs> when they got their images back. So Americans in particular love their checks. Brazil's pretty heavy too, by the way. It's not just not just an American thing. 
but the biggest problem in the states is generational. To your point, it was your aunt or your grandmother, Emily, right? They're, they're the ones that write yeah, checks. My aunt, yeah. And two, when we took the check away when we didn't give it to them, but it's also business. And the, the challenge in the B2B world is that I think the statistics, something like 50 plus percent of their payments are still check because of the infrastructure, again, accounts payable. How do you issue it? Is it electronic invoicing, electronic payment? Are you adjudicating? So the check isn't just a consumer issue. That's the generational piece. But in the B2B world, there has really not been enough movement to electronify the whole invoice to cash, you know, payment piece of the business. So a lot of the checks in the U.S., like I said, are still business checks. So um, that does remain a challenge. It also goes to workers. So if you're paying, as Marianne mentioned earlier, the person that mows the lawn, the person that paints the house, something like that, checks. However, interesting scenario for me. I write all my checks in the last at least 30 months have been to two different components. One is for taxes, for the U.S. for taxes. And the other one, to me, basically, these are checks that I have to write to myself from my business account to my personal account to transfer it between one bank to another bank. That's how you the do bank it. that Marianne and I both used to work for is extraordinarily risk adverse. They do not talk to one of the top five banks in the country that's on the West Coast freely. Now, I believe it's in the process of changing, but as a small business, I asked my branch, is there a way to avoid this? You guys finally talk to each other, so either I don't want to use ACH, I don't want to get, there's cost to everything. They said, no, you have to continue to write checks to yourself to deposit in your other bank. So basically two a month to myself, and then the government checks quarterly for tax payments. And it, it's, it's insane. I don't use checks except as a way to do something that right now, of all organizations, banks don't manage very well. You can pay the government, by the way, electronically. It's just because of the way we do things, we'd still use checks for that. But uh, it's crazy. Not yeah. very proud of the fact I've written more checks in the last four years than I did for the 12 years before that. So, Interesting. So the system, I, you hate the words that the system is broken, but unless there's a mandate, unless there is a, you know, as of this date that forces the situation. And I know the rest of the world's tried. The UK has tried several times. And I think they put a mandate out just yet again for 2030, I think. Mm -hmm. But if you remember, they put a mandate out in like 15 for 18. It was an uproar. So for a country that actually doesn't write very many checks, UK, France, it was an uproar that they were told what to do. That'll never happen in the US, ever. You know, and that'll show up in other conversations we have. The U.S. does not have mandate for anything. However, checks checks have dropped dramatically. Yes. And I spent 10 years working for one of the two major check printers in the U.S., and the number of checks have dropped precipitously. I'd say 90% or more or less checks are being written today than they were 10 years ago. So it's going away. It's just not gone. Just kind of like cash. <laughs> but it's, it's again, it's the business side that, that is the larger pieces of that volume. Yeah. yeah. And, and grandma. So <laughs> it's hard to beat habit, I guess, huh? Like that's, that's the, that's the, the thing. If something's uh, an established sort of way to pay or transfer value, then that's kind of what, you know, it's like almost a knee jerk reaction, right? You don't really think about it. No, they were appalled. I, I remember doing a man on the street interview back in three, four, when again, check 21 was going live. And it, again, generational people were like, 
where did my, they were so used to getting all of their checks back in their statement. You guys might be too young for that. <laughs> Anybody remember getting their credit card receipts back in their statement? When you signed the threefold at the restaurant, you got a copy and you would get a copy back in your credit card statement. So when that was taken away from people, where'd my check go? I remember answering the question spontaneously, check heaven. Like, why do you care where your check went? <laughs> they needed to see their check. They needed to see their check. So behavior is is absolutely a big part of any of these transactions. Well, interesting. Mobile deposit capture is one of these things that is only 10 years old, and it was a way to work around the whole using the checks, not check, you know, payment. You know, I, I still remember watching my son playing lacrosse, and I, my sister paid me for something with a check. I took a picture, gave her a check back, and it completely blew her mind. <laughs> because it was like, what do you just do? I said, I just deposit it. Son, it's gone. But that was only that was only 10 years ago. And with everything else that's gone on in the world, you know, it's sped up the process. That's just another example of the U.S. finding ways to keep the old and mix it with the new. It's not really digital. I mean, heck, if I'm writing a check and taking a picture, that's not totally a digital event. So, Plus, you're talking to two people buried in this world, right? So we're much more comfortable taking a picture of the check and, you know, all the other stuff. I have people call me when the branch down the street, when the ATM's broken, because they think I can help them, right? So it's like, hey, your ATM's broken. I'm like, I, yeah, I, you call the branch. I can't help you, right? So it's a confusing industry for regular folks, right? For people that are not buried in the complexities. Throw in all the other names of blockchain and crypto and yeah. AI and, you know, all this <laughs> yeah. stuff that it just confuses most people. So... But I think uh, what I like about payments is because there are indeed a lot of things going on, especially on the consumer side of things. Also, although that the B2B is where like, I guess a lot of the most interesting and I sort of innovative things are happening. But to make a little uh, side note, of course, we have instant payments here, right? In the Netherlands, in the EU just has like, has just issued a mandate for instant payments for any of us living in EU or EEA that have a bank account. So in the US, you have FedNow now <laughs> so so like marianne kind of explain what fed now is and like where kind of is the us and like the banks are they at with sort of like i guess onboarding it i don't know if that's the right word so it's an interesting dynamic fed now itself is the fed's response to real-time payments and so in 15 17 the clearinghouse which is the other there's two operators for um, ach in the us the clearinghouse and the fed and the clearinghouse which is privately owned privately owned is an operator but it its banks formed real-time payments. But the challenge there was the rest of the world did not, right? Not only was the Fed not, which is the major settlement and other operator, but corporates to this day still have SAP and Oracle and ERPs that, that aren't. So the rest of the US world wasn't really ready. And then a couple of years ago, I can't always remember the dates, 2021, the Fed said, we're going to do Fed now, which was their version of, of real-time payments. The interesting part was, you know, it was kind of viewed as a war between TCH and Fed, which is, that's been going on for centuries. That's not new. Um, but Fed now is the Fed's effort, bank to bank. That's really important. People somehow think that you or I or a corporate can sign up for Fed now. It's bank to bank to the Fed. So banks have to go to the Fed to agree to sign up to do Fed now real-time payments, which are 24 by 7, 365. As we discussed briefly before the call, there's six, seven major banks that have not signed up. They did a pilot with about 20 or 30, and that sort of creeped up. Now they're up to 120-ish 
banks, but again, smaller institutions, because they can't afford some of the others, but they can afford to join FedNow. The key is bank to bank. And so if ABC Bank signs up for FedNow, it is working with the Fed in a real-time basis. What ABC Bank does for its customers is a whole nother story. So not unlike the Australia model, the central bank and the banks worked out instant payment, instant settlement, because you know, again, clearing settlement. What the banks chose to do for their customers is a different story. Do I give it to my customer in instantly? Do I hold on to it for two hours? Do I hold on to it for a day? Do I charge to give it to them in real time? Huge number of computations go into how the bank actually chooses to give the money to its customers. And in the consumer world, which I've said now for years, 99% of all consumers think payments are real-time anyway. Really? They, they Oh, for sure. They don't get that the credit card swipe, the guy doesn't get the money for three days. They walked out with their coat. That was real-time. It hit their statement real-time. Now, it's a credit transaction. They know they don't have to pay it till the end of the month, but for them, that's a real-time payment. The only time, the only time it really came to, to light was if you tried to put a paycheck check into an ATM on Friday and you got the notice that said, memo post, this will be available on Monday, right? Because we have to, to, to clear it. So that's the, really the only time the consumer would get involved in the delay of, of payments. Most consumers think, and they all are very well, they write a check, it's three days. Anybody remember the days of float management? Find the controlled disbursement on the highest mountain somewhere. So your check took seven days to, to clear. I won an award for finding Tuxedo Junction at the top of a Colorado mountain. Um, it took seven and a half days for a check to clear. <laughs> So there was all those games that went with it, and that's you know practically gone because of image, because of electronification, right? Even if you write a check, it's cleared within hours because somebody made it an image or made it an electronic file. But they won't be able to access. They won't be able to access if they deposit like that. Correct. They won't be able to access that until at least the next day. Now, what's interesting is everyone thinks that Venmo, which is the primary way that consumers pay consumers in the states, not not Zelle, when it comes to consumer-to-consumer payments, it's Venmo. They, everybody believes, and they get access to immediately. So if I paid you with a Zelle transfer, you'd be able to use that money instantly out of your account. So even though it's not an instant behind-the-scenes payment, it is processed in such a way that I can have immediate access to that. On the other hand, my deposit from bank A to bank B takes at least a day to have it actually take hold. And usually it's going to be some of it today, some of it tomorrow or the next day. So there's a there's a fake delay. And it's risk management, right? So if you're willing to extend, I mean, the other thing, it's, it's sort of like it is the bank I bank at does that whole early pay. So it will, it, it's taken, and this is common, not just one bank. Your paycheck's due on the 15th and the 30th, right? That's when they deposit it. My paycheck shows up on the 13th. Not because the person that paid me gave it date two days early. As you all know, the files go into the system one to two days ahead of the settlement date. My bank has chosen to give me that money instantly. They're not going to get the money from the payer until Friday the 15th. So I did this whole study with how are they taking that risk on? And they, they're taking the risk on of giving me my paycheck two days before the bank is actually getting the money from the payer. One, marketing genius. Two, risk management. Right. Pretty sure if you get a file from, you know, a large corporate, it's going to be good. Right. They've done their profiling and they're not worried that that transaction won't occur. So a lot of stuff in the real time world is risk management or credit 
kind of review and management. Like a lot of these institutions are taking a risk, a calculated profile risk to give money in an instant like look manner, taking the chance that it's it's probably going to be fine. And there's a lot of that going on behind the scenes because it isn't truly, truly instant, real-time clearing and settlement. There's a difference between posting and memo posting, clearing and settlement. Clearing and settlement means done. Debit, credit have hit. Memo post does not mean debit and credit have hit. It's still out there and waiting to settle land. So that's what most people do not understand is though some of these transactions are floating for a day or more before they actually are considered settled. So I'm, I'm trying to figure out on this podcast how many people from other countries are going You've got to be kidding me. <laughs> this is the way they actually, because unless you're in the banking industry and really track the fact that the U.S. is so far behind, if you're in any other country than the U.S., including Canada, you're already going, what in the world's going on here? You know, and, and you know, there's a lot of archaic rules, even from the standpoint of debit or debits and credits processed in a specific order by financial institutions. Right. They're still allowed, in many cases, to process the withdrawal before deposits, which doesn't become a really big problem unless you're somebody like me that one time found out he mistakenly had an account go um, negative, immediately transferred money from within the same bank, and the next day still showed negative because they processed the next withdrawal before the deposit. That's hard to explain to a consumer where you go, okay, I can kind of understand if you're waiting for money to come from a check I deposit, but I instantly, upon getting a notification that I was overdrawn, made the transfer. Now, my financial institution reversed both because of the fact that they know it doesn't make any sense. Right now, I think in everything, not just payments, but in the world of banking today, for the first time in our lifetimes, all of ours, the consumers driving the train. They used to be in the caboose and the banks pretty much drove the train and it pretty much handed the way it was. And in the, in the coal car, I'll use an old train. In the coal car were many, maybe the regulators or the compliance people, and then the caboose were the consumers. They were doing whatever came to them. What is interesting in the last 10 years with technology and payments and all the other components that come into this, the consumer knows what's possible. They know what's possible based on their streaming service. They know what's possible based on their digital shopping capabilities. They know what's possible even from the standpoint of using trackers in your car to pay tolls on a toll booth. All these things are processed in their mind saying, wait, if this is possible, why isn't this? So the consumer is hitting this with logic. The banking world's playing catch up. And the feds are also, they're, they're probably, certainly in the rest of the world, they're ahead of the banks. They're, they're trying to get ahead of the game, stay ahead of the game. I'd still say they're, they're paying a little bit of a catch up game in the US. Oh, they are, and it's really interesting. I was in Sao Paulo right, right before I spent a lot of time down there on PIX, which is their real time. Yes. And it was so funny. You're in a room of bankers, fintechs and bankers, because they're very heavy fintech down there. You know, they're the largest payments processor in the world, Brazil. Largest payments processor. Most payments of anybody. And they're like literally looking at me going, Marianne, can you explain why the U.S. is so far ahead? And I was like, whoa, whoa. whoa. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's stop that conversation right now. Yeah. And for all the reasons that Jim mentioned as well, but. We have in the U.S. 12,000 plus financial institutions, whether you call them thrifts, savings and loans, credit unions, banks, they don't play together well in the sandbox. They play by different rules. We have seven to 10 dominant players, right? Those are some of the people that aren't playing in Fed now. 
So it's, it's a little bit cultural. It's a little bit, you know, free of, of, you know, go form a bank, a neo bank, a digital bank, a form a bank, get a charter. And so they, while there's regulations that they have to follow, most regulations don't happen until a disaster happens. Regulators are not proactive. They're not necessarily educated on the space. They are reactive. So once something bad happens, the regulators step in to now regulate so that it doesn't happen, you know, in a go forward basis. But the challenge in the U.S. is sheer size. And number two, we will never mandate. Never. The U.S. government will not mandate real time. It will not mandate pricing. Switzerland's going to put out, as we speak, they're going to put out mandated free pricing for real time payments. Mandated free. Can't charge. Everybody else is, do I charge a penny? Like I said before, do I charge if I give it to you faster? It's free if I give it to you later. So what you have is the Federal Reserve coming up with Fed now three or four years ago when PSD2 and faster payments was 2008. Then you have PICS and then you have, you know, the stuff in the, yeah, I worked on G3, NPP in Australia. I worked on all of those back in 12, 13, and 14. But they were either central bank obligations or a government mandate like in the UK. It was a mandate. PICS was a mandate. You will have instant payments one year from today. That's not going to happen in the U.S. So it's market driven. To Jim's point, the consumers are a little wiser. Again, they think real time's already here. But what we do, what we have done, is we have made consumers mainly, but business always think about payments instead of just I really just want to buy a coat. I really just want to buy dinner. But instead, we actually make them think of well, what kind of payment mechanism do I want to use? What what buys me the most? What gets me the most time? What is easiest? What is We've actually made consumers think about payments when payments are actually the end of a transaction. You know, nobody gets up in the morning and goes, oh, I'm going to make a payment today. <laughs> I don't know on what, but I'm going to make a payment, right? Nobody does that. But we've actually made people think about how, how they're going to make a payment. You've just been listening to Paytech Talk, the podcast about payments. Today's guests were Jim Rue co-publisher of the financial brand and Marianne Francis, executive advisor, mentor, global payment strategic initiatives. Paytech Talk is brought to you by Cognito Media Amsterdam. Thanks for listening to this part one. Next week, we will have another edition of Payments in the U.S. Thanks for listening.